Section 26 of The World's Famous Orations, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 3. On the Right to Tax America, by William Murray, Earl of Mansfield. Footnote. Delivered in the British House of Lords in reply to Lord Camden, February 3, 1766, or two weeks after Chatham had spoken on the same subject. Born in 1705, died in 1793. Solicitor General in 1742 to 1754. Attorney General in 1754 to 1756. Chief Justice of the King's Bench in 1756 to 1788 prominent in the cabinet after 1756. 1766. I shall speak to the question strictly as a matter of right, for it is a proposition in its nature so perfectly distinct from the expediency of the tax that it must necessarily be taken separate if there is any true logic in the world. But of the expediency or inexpediency I will say nothing. It will be time enough to speak upon that subject when it comes to be a question. I shall also speak to the distinctions which have been taken, without any real difference, as to the nature of the tax, and I shall point out, lastly, the necessity there will be of exerting the force of the superior authority of government, if opposed by the subordinate part of it. I am extremely sorry that the question has ever become necessary to be agitated, and that there should be a decision upon it. No one in this house will live long enough to see an end put to the mischief which will be the result of the doctrine which has been inculcated. But the arrow is shot, and the wound already given. I shall certainly avoid personal reflections. No one has had more cast upon him than myself. But I never was biased by any consideration of applause from without in the discharge of my public duty. And in giving my sentiments according to what I thought law, I have relied upon my own consciousness. It is with great pleasure I have heard the noble lord who moved the resolution express himself in so manly and sensible a way, when he recommended a dispassionate debate, while at the same time he urged the necessity of the House coming to such a resolution with great dignity and propriety of argument. I shall endeavor to clear away from the question all that mass of dissertation and learning displayed in arguments which have been fetched from speculative men who have written upon the subject of government or from ancient records, as being little to the purpose. I shall insist that these records are no proofs of our present Constitution. A noble lord has taken up his argument from the settlement of the Constitution at the Revolution. Footnote. The Revolution of 1688 which dethroned James II and bestowed the crown upon William of Orange and Mary. End footnote. I shall take up my argument from the Constitution as it now is. The constitution of this country has been always in a moving state, either gaining or losing something, and with respect to the modes of taxation when we get beyond the reign of Edward I or of King John, we are all in doubt and obscurity. The history of those times is full of uncertainties. In regard to the writs upon record they were issued some of them according to law, and some not according to law, and such, that is, of the latter kind were those concerning ship money, to call assemblies to tax themselves, or to compel benevolences. Other taxes were ranged from escutage, fees for night service, and by other means arising out of the feudal system. 
benevolences are contrary to law and it is well known how people resisted the demands of the crown in the case of ship money and were persecuted by the court and if any set of men were to meet now to lend the king money it would be contrary to law and a breach of the rights of parliament i shall now answer the noble lord particularly upon the cases he has quoted with respect to the marches of wales who were the borderers privileged for assisting the king in his war against the welsh in the mountains their enjoying this privilege of taxing themselves was but of a short duration and during the life of edward the first till the prince of wales came to be the king and then they were annexed to the crown and became subject to taxes like the rest of the dominions of england and from thence came the custom though unnecessary of naming wales and the town of monmouth in all proclamations and in acts of parliament henry the eighth was the first who issued writs for it to return two members to parliament the crown exercised this right ad libitum from whence arises the inequality of representation in our constitution at this day henry the eighth issued a writ to calais to send one burgess to parliament one of the counties palatine i think he said durham was taxed fifty years to subsidies before it sent members to parliament the clergy were at no time unrepresented in parliament when they taxed themselves it was done with the concurrence and consent of parliament who permitted them to tax themselves upon their petition the convocation sitting at the same time with the parliament they had too their representatives always sitting in this house bishops and abbots and in the other house they were at no time without a right of voting singly for the election of members so that the argument fetched from the case of the clergy is not an argument of any force because they were at no time unrepresented here the reasoning about the colonies of great britain drawn from the colonies of antiquity is a mere useless display of learning for the colonies of the tyrians in africa and of the greeks in asia were totally different from our system no nation before ourselves formed any regular system of colonization but the romans and their system was a military one and of garrisons placed in the principal towns of the conquered provinces the states of holland were not colonies of spain they were states dependent upon the house of austria and a feudal dependence nothing could be more different from our colonies than that flock of men as they have been called who came from the north and poured into europe these immigrants renounced all laws all protection all connection with their mother countries they chose their leaders and marched under their banners to seek their fortunes and established new kingdoms upon the ruins of the roman empire but our colonies on the contrary immigrated under the sanction of the crown and parliament they were modeled gradually into their present forms respectively by charters grants and statutes but they were never separated from the mother country or so emancipated as to become sui juris there are several sorts of colonies in british america the charter colonies the proprietary governments and the king's colonies the first colonies were the charter colonies such as the virginia company and these companies had among their directors members of the privy council and of both houses of parliament they were under authority of the privy council and had agents resident here responsible for their proceedings so much were they considered as belonging to the crown and not to the king personally for there is a great difference though few people attend to it that when the two houses in the time of charles i were going to pass a bill concerning the colonies a message was sent to them by the king that they were the king's colonies and that the bill was unnecessary for that the privy council would take order about them and the bill never had the royal assent 
the commonwealth parliament as soon as it was settled were very early jealous of the colonies separating themselves from them and passed a resolution or act and it is a question whether it is not in force now to declare and establish the authority of england over its colonies but if there was no express law or reason founded upon any necessary inference from an express law yet the usage alone would be sufficient to support that authority for have not the colonies submitted ever since their first establishment to the jurisdiction of the mother country in all questions of property the appeals from the colonies have been to the privy council here and such causes have been determined not by the law of the colonies but by the law of england at present the several forms of their constitution are very various having been produced as all governments have been originally by accident and circumstances the forms of government in every colony were adopted from time to time according to the size of the colony and so have been extended again from time to time as the numbers of their inhabitants and their commercial connections outgrew the first model in some colonies at first there was only a governor assisted by two or three council then more were added afterward courts of justice were erected then assemblies were created some things were done by instructions from the secretaries of state other things were done by order of the king and council and other things by commissions under the great seal it is observable that in consequence of these establishments from time to time and of the dependency of these governments upon the supreme legislature at home the leniency of each government in the colonies has been extreme toward the subject and a great inducement has been created for all people to come and settle in them but if all those governments which now are independent of each other should become independent of the mother country i am afraid that the inhabitants of the colonies are very little aware of the consequences they would feel in that case very soon the hand of power more heavily upon them in their own governments than they have yet done or have ever imagined the constitutions of the different colonies are thus made up of different principles they must remain dependent from the necessity of things in their relation to the jurisdiction of the mother country or they must be totally dismembered from it and form a league of union among themselves against it which could be effected without great violences no one ever thought the contrary till the trumpet of sedition was blown acts of parliament have been made not only without a doubt of their legality but with universal applause the great object of which has been ultimately to fix the trade of the colonies so as to centre in the bosom of that country from whence they took their original the navigation act shut up their intercourse with foreign countries their ports have been made subject to customs and regulations which have cramped and diminished their trade and duties have been laid affecting the very inmost parts of their commerce and among others that of the post yet all these have been submitted to peaceably and no one ever thought till now of this doctrine that the colonies are not to be taxed regulated or bound by parliament a few particular merchants were then as now displeased at restrictions which did not permit them to make the greatest possible advantages of their commerce in their own private and peculiar branches but though these few merchants might think themselves losers in articles which they had no right to gain as being prejudicial to the general and national system yet i must observe that the colonies upon the whole were benefited by these laws for these restrictive laws founded upon principles of the most solid policy flung a great weight of naval force into the hands of the mother country which was to protect its colonies without a union with her the colonies must have been entirely weak and defenceless but they thus became relatively great 
subordinately and in proportion as the mother country advanced in superiority over the rest of the maritime powers in europe to which both mutually contributed and of which both have reached a benefit equal to the natural and just relation in which they both stand reciprocally of dependency on one side and protection on the other there can be no doubt my lords but that the inhabitants of the colonies are as much represented in parliament as the greatest part of the people of england are represented among nine million of whom there are eight which have no votes in electing members of parliament every objection therefore to the dependency of the colonies upon parliament which arises to it upon the ground of representation goes to the whole present constitution of great britain and i supposed it is not meant to new model that too people may form speculative ideas of perfection and indulge their own fancies or those of other men every man in this country has his particular notion of liberty but perfection never did and never can exist in any human institution to what purpose then are arguments drawn from a distinction in which there is no real difference of a virtual and actual representation a member of parliament chosen for any borough represents not only the constituents and inhabitants of that particular place but he represents the inhabitants of every other borough in great britain he represents the city of london and all the other commons of this land and the inhabitants of all the colonies and dominions of great britain and is in duty and conscience bound to take care of their interests with respect to what has been said or written upon this subject i differ from the noble lord who spoke of mr otis and his book with contempt though he maintained the same doctrine in some points while in others he carried it farther than otis himself who allows everywhere the supremacy of the crown over the colonies footnote james otis whose speech in opposition to writs of assistance may be found in volume eight of these orations the book to which lord mansfield refers may have been the rights of the colonies asserted and proved published in london in seventeen sixty five or another work by otis vindication of the house of representatives of massachusetts published in seventeen sixty two footnote no man on such a subject is contemptible otis is a man of consequence among the people there they have chosen him for one of their deputies at the congress and general meeting from the respective governments it was said that the man is mad what then one madman often makes many massaniello was mad nobody doubts it yet for all that he overturned the government of naples madness is catching in all popular assemblies and upon all popular matters the book is full of wildness i never read it till a few days ago for i seldom look into such things i never was actually acquainted with the contents of the stamp act till i sent for it on purpose to read it before the debate was expected i am far from bearing any ill-will to the americans they are a very good people and i have long known them i began life with them footnote. mansfield does not mean by this that he had ever lived in america End footnote and owe much to them having been much concerned in the plantation causes before the privy council and so i became a good deal acquainted with american affairs and people i dare say their heat will soon be over when they come to feel a little the consequences of their opposition to the legislature anarchy always cures itself but the ferment will continue so much the longer while hot-headed men there find that there are persons of weight and character to support and justify them here i am satisfied notwithstanding that time and a wise and steady conduct may prevent those extremities which would be fatal to both 
I remember well when it was the violent humor of the times to decry standing armies and garrisons as dangerous and incompatible with the liberty of the subject. Nothing would do but a regular militia. The militia are embodied, they march, and no sooner was the militia law thus put into execution, but it was then said to be an intolerable burden upon the subject, and that it would fall, sooner or later, into the hands of the crown. That was the language, and many counties petitioned against it. This may be the case with the colonies. In many places they begin already to feel the effects of their resistance to government. Interest very soon divides mercantile people and although there may be some mad, enthusiastic, or ill-designing people in the colonies, yet I am convinced that the greatest bulk who have understanding and property are still well affected to the mother country. You have, my lords, many friends still in the colonies, and take care that you do not, by abdicating your own authority, desert them and yourselves, and lose them forever. In all popular tumults the worst men bear the sway at first, Moderate and good men are often silent for fear or modesty, who in good time may declare themselves. Those who have any property to lose are sufficiently alarmed already at the progress of these public violences and violations to which every man's dwelling, person, and property are hourly exposed. Numbers of such valuable men and good subjects are ready and willing to declare themselves for the support of government in due time, if government does not fling away its own authority. My lords, the Parliament of Great Britain has its rights over the colonies, but it may abdicate its rights. But, my lords, I shall make this application of it. You may abdicate your right over the colonies. Take care, my lords, how you do so, for such an act will be irrevocable. Proceed, then, my lords, with spirit and firmness, and when you shall have established your authority, it will then be a time to show your lenity. The Americans, as I said before, are a very good people, and I wish them exceedingly well. But they are heated and inflamed. The noble Lord who spoke before ended with a prayer. I cannot end better than by saying to it, Amen, and in the words of Maurice, Prince of Orange, concerning the Hollanders, God bless this industrious, frugal, and well-meaning, but easily deluded people. End of section 26 Recording by Philip Gould